I think it was really good for hip hop. And I don't think it was ever going to turn violent. But I think, again, there was just this kind of like national paranoia around hip hop. And there is, you know, in waves, I think it was just a good reminder that you can have like a spirited dispute and it, it's okay. And it's entertainment, you know, and it's nothing that anybody needs to be afraid of. So, you know, of course, like credit to Jay and Nas for resolving it amicably. But yeah, I mean, just to have that end, you know, like very amicably, I think was just so good for everybody involved. And then, you know, I think it's really fun to watch Jay and Nas as their relationship has evolved. And, you know, Nas was sort of always like the one who was sort of behind when it came to the business of things. Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. This podcast is your place to gain insights from executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip-hop culture to the next level. episode is a rewind. We're going back in the clock to the late 90s, early 2000s, and we're revisiting one of the most iconic record labels at the time, the one and only Rockefeller Records. Rockefeller Records is the record label started by Jay-Z, Dame Dash, and Biggs Burke, and went on to be one of the most iconic hip-hop record labels and hip-hop brands. And that's a key thing from this conversation. I was joined by my friend, Zach O'Malley-Greenberg. He wrote Empire State of Mind, a biography on Jay-Z. And he also wrote Three Kings that broke down Jay-Z, Dr. Dre, and Diddy's business moves. So he was a perfect person to have this conversation with. We talked about the highs of this record label, the lows, some of the best business moves, where Jay-Z and Dame didn't see eye to eye, some of the dark horse business moves that they made, what was the best signing from Rockefeller Records, missed opportunities, and more. If you enjoyed the episodes we did on Cash Money and Interscope, this one will be right up your alley, and we already know what it is when we're talking about Jay, Dame, and Big, so let's dive into it. Hope you enjoy it. This episode of the Trapital Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Dice where fans can experience more of the shows they love. Buying concert tickets can be exhausting. It's easy to miss your favorite artists when they're in town, and fans have to watch for hidden fees and resellers who drive up ticket prices, all while hoping one of their friends can attend. You deserve better as a fan. On Dice, you can find quality live shows tailored to you. Dice will tell you what's happening in your area and offer a personalized selection of shows. Artists love to partner with Dice because they provide complete and fair experience with fans through their waiting list technology that locks tickets to smartphones. Plus, Dice's robust analytics helps artists better understand their audience. Venues and promoters love Dice because their data-driven tools, customer service, and direct connection to fans across the world make it the place to buy and sell tickets. Want to learn more? Check out Dice at dice.fm. That's D-I-C-E dot F-M. All right, we are back to do another breakdown on one of the most iconic record labels, the one and only Rockefeller Records. And I'm joined by someone who wrote the book on one of the most influential people behind this record label, Zach O'Malley Greenberg. Welcome back, man. Thanks for having me on, Dan, as always. Yeah, and with this one, I think it's good to start even before Rockefeller Records because this label was a long time coming and there were a number of things that Jay, Dame, and Biggs, the founders of this record label, were involved before this. So set the stage. Where were we pre-Rockefeller launch? Yeah, so you know, I think a lot of people forget, although Jay-Z is a billionaire now a couple times over, back in the early 90s, he wasn't even sure that he could make it as a rapper full time. So you know, he'd appeared on a couple of tracks with his mentor, Jazz O, this great golden age rapper. He had popped up kind of here and there, but, you know, really he was finding that it was much more lucrative to be a hustler. And so he was increasingly making more and more trips out of town to New Jersey and Maryland and so forth, doing his thing. And, you know, I think he really kind of saw music as a hobby at that point. So he did have you know, a couple of supporters, namely DJ Clark Kent, you know, one of these influential producers at the time. And, you know, Clark Kent really believed in Jay when a lot of people didn't. And so he kind of kept trying to convince him to give it another shot. Like he could do this as an actual profession and finally convince him to sort of take this meeting with Damon Dash. He thought that Jay-Z was this just like once in a generation talent 
from the musical side and that Dame was sort of this promotional mastermind. And then if the two forces kind of united, they could create something really special. So in my book, Empire State of Mind, Clark Kent tells the story of how he convinced Jay and Dame to sort of meet up. And so Dame, of course, is from Harlem. Jay's from Brooklyn. There's sort of like this New York City snobbery thing going on, you know, Manhattan folks kind of maybe look down sometimes on people from Brooklyn. And so they get together and Dame rolls in, he sees Jay's wearing a pair of Air Force Ones. And he's like, okay, this guy's cool. <laughs> you know, he has good taste in sneakers. So I can do business with him. And that was kind of like, you know, the initial hurdle was, you know, overcome and off they went. And so they struck up this really productive partnership together where, you know, Dame would kind of help Jay-Z sell, you know, they would go around selling CDs out of the trunks of cars and stuff like that. They were trying to get a proper record deal and they just didn't have it. Like nobody was kind of like really into the whole Jay thing at the time. And, you know, if you think about the music that he was making on Reasonable Doubt, it's like very nuanced, you know, like a lot of words packed into not very many bars, you know, like the, the space and the rapidity of the flow is like, kind of not what was happening at the time in the, you know, by this time, like getting toward the mid nineties. So basically they decided to go and start their own and they brought in Kareem Biggs Burke, who was kind of a silent, you know, another formidable hustler in his own right. And, you know, so there was the talent, the silent partner and, you know, the promotion guy. And, you know, when their powers combined, they were Captain Planet or whatever. They were Rockefeller records. And I think part of the thing with Jay-Z that made this unique was his age at this point as well, because by the time they start Rockefeller, he's already in his mid-20s, which doesn't sound anything unusual now. But back then, the rappers that were blowing up were always teenagers. They were always early 20s. You think about Dr. Dre, everyone from NWA. You think about Nas when he dropped Illmatic. Or you look at LL Cool J, everyone is a young cat. So for Jay to then drop his debut album when he's 26 is an ancient man, a grandfather trying to get into this game. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like a 26-year-old rookie in, you know, the NBA or in baseball or something. It's just like, you don't see it, I mean, almost ever. And when it does happen, it's sort of like a journeyman you know, like role player type, but Jay, you know, had just packed a lifetime worth of lyrics into this one album because he kind of viewed it as, you know, this was like a one and done, like a novelty thing. And, you know, he really fully anticipated, you know, kind of coming up from the underworld, dropping this gem of an album and then kind of like disappearing off into the ether, like Kaiser Soze at the end of Usual Suspects. And that, I mean, that was actually his plan, you know, according to a lot of people who I talked to around the time. So, yeah, it, it was definitely not sort of the normal path for creating an album. I mean, I think they thought that, you know, they could put out this album, it would do well, and then, you know, maybe they would bring along other artists and he wouldn't have to be sort of at the forefront. Like, he might just keep doing his thing on the hustling side or whatever. But obviously things turned out a little bit differently. This album was also a bit of a slow burn from a success perspective. I know that many people now, when they're debating the best Jay-Z albums, the best Rockefeller albums, this one's always mentioned, as well as a few others that we'll get into. But if you look at the commercial performance for this album in the beginning, it was not that high. The same week that it came out, the Nutty Professor soundtrack <laughs> sold more <laughs> records than Reasonable Doubt. And around the same time that summer, I'm pretty sure that Shaquille O'Neal's album, because he was putting out albums at the time, also sold more than Reasonable Doubt did. So extremely slow burn. And you mentioned something earlier about the hustle that I want to tap into, because this is one of the big value adds that Dame Dash had with this. He was relentless. And we've all heard the stories. Many people that have met him have also seen what it's like up front. A lot of it speaks to his success. But he was someone who was in many ways notorious for going to the New York radio stations and giving them gifts, understanding, yes, this essentially is payola, but this is what everyone else is doing. This is what the people with the real money in the industry are doing. So he's leading into that as well. And you mentioned Kaiser Associates also makes me think about, there's one of the music videos that Jay had from In My Lifetime Volume 1 whether I forget which song it was, but 
the song essentially, or the music video essentially was a spoof on Usual Suspects where he's impersonating the, the Kevin Spacey Kaiser Sose character on it. Sorry for anyone that hasn't seen Usual Suspects <laughs> for the spoilers I just dropped there. But there's so many things uh, that I think tie in with that and just stay consistent with who he is at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that whole album, you know, the aesthetic was very like, maybe not Kaiser Soze, but, you know, sort of like gangster movie sort of thing. And, you know, all the album artwork, you know, it's him in like a fedora and black and white and all, all that kind of thing. And so, you know, I, I think that he's been obsessed with mafia movies for like his entire life. And you don't hear it quite as much, you know, as more recent albums, but he was kind of like, living this underworld life at the time and so i think it really resonated with him maybe in a way that that it that doesn't quite resonate now and i think too that was in a lot of ways the theme that we saw he did in the 90s you definitely saw big do it especially in the whole life after death era right before he passed and i think there were a few moments that gave him the initial bump even after having reasonable doubt drop jay himself was featured on the Nutty Professor soundtrack because he had the song with Foxy Brown that was also on his album. And then he's on Foxy's album album a little bit later, her debut. He's also on, what's the song that Jay, oh, they did Brooklyn's Finest on Jay's album. Going okay. back to Cali was on there. Oh my God, what an album. Yeah, but yeah. that was not, <laughs> I would say Jay-Z got the better end of the collabos with the Brooklyn's Finest. I mean, that is a classic Clark Kent produced that one also. And, you know, that was kind of like, that was another funny story from the book. Like, you know, that there was also a bit of a friendly rival. Like they were, there were buds and all like Jay and big, but there was like a little bit of a friendly rivalry between Jay and Dame and puff and big, because I think, you know, like, so the whole bad boy thing was more established by the time that Rockefeller Records came about. And so I think Puff was kind of like, Dame Dash, like another dude from Harlem, are you trying to be me kind of thing, you know? And so in order to make that song happen, I think before Jay and Big were friends, Clark Kent kind of tricked them into recording the song together. So he was in a session with Big and then he accidentally played a tape of a track that he had that was just, an amazing track and big was like that's great i want to get on that and he was like no i'm saving it for somebody else and big's like well who the hell else are you saving it for and he's like my man jay you know he's amazing he's a beast and big's like i don't who what jay who and so finally like clark kent sort of like goaded him into unbeknownst to big clark kent had arranged for like jay and Dame to be in a car downstairs. And he was like, oh, I think he's actually just coming in. And so he went down and he brought him up. And so like Jay went in and recorded his verses, I think right then and there, and he left spaces for Big to put his verses in. And when Big went in and he listened to it, he was like, oh my God, this guy's so good. I have to like go home and really think about this, about what I'm gonna put in there in the spaces that he left for me. And I think after that, they were really good friends. But you know, it's that kind of like, good natured trickery, shall we say, that, you know, I think some of these circumstances happen when you've got some egos in the building and you want to make some magic. And, you know, as I recall, you know, for the chorus, Jay and Big had like become fast friends. And so like they're leaving the studio and Clark's like, you know, on the final day that Biggie came and recorded or whatever. And Clark's like, what should I do for the chorus? And they're like, just scratch something. <laughs> and that, that was how it happened. Classic. And that's such a New York story. And it's also such a 90s hip hop story in terms of how the industry worked, having someone like, oh, so-and-so's just downstairs. They're going to come up right now because you have them and right. how people work things. Classic. And it speaks to where Jay was at the time, too, because as we mentioned, Reasonable Doubt, Slow Burn took a while for it to get the respect that it deserves. But then you go to 1997, he has In My Lifetime. And that album also, Slow Burn, and wasn't necessarily as highly regarded as Reasonable Doubt, but still had some songs. And you could tell that Jay was trying to navigate a few things, whether it was he had the flashy suit ever himself when he had the song Always Be My Sunshine. He's feeling that out. I mentioned he had the Kaiser Sose spoof music video, but it really isn't until 1998 where things start to change. So a few things happen here. 
the album volume two hard knock life comes out that song hard knock life changes everything for the trajectory of that label and that's when they start the partnership with def jam so let's talk about the def jam piece first can you talk a little bit about that one and break it down yeah so as i recall you know in early rockefeller they had struck this distribution deal i think it was with priority and you know reasonable doubt was they had already been selling it on their own sort of informally out of the trunks of cars and priority you know was distributing it but it was kind of a disaster they weren't paying jay on time and or maybe at all at some point and so he just kind of went back to them and was like you know, if you're not going to be paying me or paying me everything and not paying me on time or whatever, just like give me my master's back and get me out of it. And somehow that's what happened. So that freed him up to be able to take this deal with Def Jam, where Def Jam bought a piece of Rockefeller Records. But again, you know, because they were buying a piece of it and not signing to a deal, you know, he continued to own, you know, a considerably higher portion of, of his own copyrights and, you know, the possess more of the cash that came in than he would have otherwise. But, you know, he already had the success. They already had this apparatus set up. So he, he had like, you know, he had leverage in the negotiation. And I think, you know, even though his second album, I think was kind of a dud and it, he would always, like he has said in interviews that that's his worst album and the one that he'd like to have back, you know, he had some heat, you know, with reasonable doubt and then kind of like coming off the heels of Biggie's death and being sort of like the heir apparent, I was tight with Puffy who produced the second album, you know, for better or worse. But, you know, I think that really gave them sort of the ability to get what they wanted at a Def Jam, which was like, yeah, I think part of the reason that first album didn't do so well. And it, I think it was until fairly recently, his worst selling album until sort of the back catalog began to catch up. But what they needed was distribution in those days was really important. Like you, you needed, you know, you could have Damon Dash like haranguing people at, rec you know, at radio stations all you want, but in order to really have the kind of, you know, national scale that you need to be a superstar, at least in those days, you really wanted to do with the label. So that's what they did. Right. You needed someone that could get 500,000 units to 7,000 distribution points. And there were barriers to entry in order to do that. And yeah, to your point, I don't care how many bottles of champagne you try to give to Hot 97. <laughs> that's not going to make that happen without it, right? The thing that I always think about with this era, though, is the terms of this deal, because at least what we've seen publicly was that Def Jam had taken a 50% stake in Rockefeller Records, and it was for one and a half million dollars. And that number always stuck out to me a bit, because if you look at some of the other deals that had happened in that era, you had Masterpiece distribution deal that he had done with the same priority records that... Rockefeller had their deal with, but Master P obviously had a much more favorable distribution deal with splits in his favor. And then similarly, that same year, 1998, Cash Money does their distribution deal with Republic Records. Of course, Def Jam is a different unit and Rockefeller was in a very different place. And we know that Jay-Z had always talked about ownership and it was important to him, but it's an interesting reflection of just where things looked at in the landscape, because it's easy to look back in Jay's career in hindsight and think that, oh yeah, his first album was a classic and then Hard Knock Life comes and everything is just up and up. But there was still hierarchy and there were other artists that were getting more favorable deals, more ownership for their music, for their record labels. And Rockefeller still got something that was somewhat favorable, but still not at the same level of some of those other people in the mid to late nineties. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting point, right? I mean, Jay obviously is this brilliant businessman and, you know, Dame and Biggs aren't too shabby either. And yet it was a good deal, but it wasn't anything like a cash money or a no limit in terms of the splits and what they were doing. So, yeah, I mean, I think to your point, you know, those other acts had kind of like a more established operation. You know, Jay was one guy with one album that didn't, sell very well that was kind of critically acclaimed you know so it was like a bit more of a risk perhaps on def jam's parts because they weren't really risking that much capital on them so you know i mean and i guess i wonder if that initial deal had been more favorable for rockefeller if they had managed to have you know the kind of splits that cash money and no limit had might they have stayed in business together longer you know in a way it's like if the pie that 
you have, or like, so if the one big pie and you know, if your slice of the pie that you're sharing with your two business partners is that much smaller than it is, then, you know, let's say the Williams brothers were sharing a cash money, you know, maybe you feel a lot more restless and inclined to go elsewhere, but we can get to that later. Right. I think that's a good point too, because it, cash money is still in business and we know because we recorded that episode not too long ago, but Birdman and Slim are still getting tens of millions of dollars per year. It's essentially a cash cow asset that they have. Def Jam is still collecting from Rockefeller as is Universal. And I know that Jay and Dame and Biggs do have their splits, but it's not the same because they eventually did sell the other half of the record label to the parent company, Def Jam, or I think it was Island Def Jam at the time that that deal happened, but it changes the dynamics a lot. But with the story though, we're getting to the point where Rockefeller is clearly on the way up. And I think there were a few things coming that did set things up for them. But one thing that I think was a big difference maker for them around 1999 was them wanting to go on tour and have their name out there. So 1999, they have the Hard Knock Life Tour. And at this time, it was pretty rare for all hip hop act to have a nationwide arena tour that happened because at the time they had past shows or whether it was at run DMC shows or other things in the late eighties, early nineties. And because of violence and because of things like that, all these promoters and all these venue operators were so scared of hip hop. So you had smoke and grooves and other festivals like that in the mid nineties, where they always had to pair you with the R and B actor. They had to have two folks together. I know that bad boy had its arena tours as well, but they always had the R and B acts that were there. So they needed to, they were really trying to do something different, but I think this is where Dame's magic came to life because he was able to really control the narrative and be out in front with how they were making sure that violence wouldn't happen, whether they had their own security on top of whoever was there. They had the Fruit of Islam that was at each of these shows standing there to have the bodyguards there as present. When the reporters came into the trailers to see what they were doing on tour, there's this iconic video of Tai Tai and he has videos up and this VHS tapes up of, oh, you think we're just watching gangster flicks? No, here, we got Goodwill Hunting right here. We got Braveheart. We got as good as it gets. Like we're here watching videos like anyone else. And with that, and even, I think they did something that was either, either donating money or something as well because in Colorado, because they had a show right around the same time that the Columbine shooting had happened there. So mm. there were a few things they'd done there. And I think that tour in a lot of ways helped not just the Rockefeller crew, but all the other folks that were associated with them that came along like Red and Meth and Ja Rule and others. But then after that, we then saw the Up and Smoke tour. We saw Rough Riders and Cash Money go on tour. And I think that tour in a lot of ways helped propel them into that next level to continue to have a lot of that success. Totally. And you know, and I think it wasn't necessarily reflected in the bottom line. I mean, I don't remember what the gross was, but you know, 18 sure, million, I think. Yeah, like Taylor Swift probably grossed that in one show. I think she Meadowlands, made that in but, uh, two of the three nights at uh, definitely um, definitely over a weekend Stadium. in the Netherlands. But yeah, yeah, she probably yeah, definitely let's say definitely crushed it in her like little weekend stint in the Netherlands. But you know, and so obviously, if you're grossing 18 million dollars, you're probably only taking home you know 10 of that after cost, maybe like probably more like you know I don't know seven or eight, and then you're dividing that up amongst however many people. There were a lot of people on that tour for like a fair amount of tour dates. So it did not work out to a lot of sort of take home pay per show, but it really kind of opened the door. I think in the aftermath of the death of Tupac and Biggie and like all of this, you know, sort of like moral panic around hip hop and violence and, and all of the, you know, whatever Tipper Gore stuff, you know, that this was sort of like a reminder that like, yes, hip hop acts can go on tour and it's going to be fine. And like that, you know, that had been done in the past and run DMC and, and what have you, but you know, NWA had gone on tour and, you know, had a big national tour. So there were other examples before, but I think people were like kind of freaked out about hip hop in the national zeitgeist at the time. And this kind of really helped to kind of reset things and, you know, open the door for other rappers, but, you know, for Jay-Z himself down the line, you know, 
I mean, he's been a really prolific touring act. And I, I think he's always been really clever about it because he's like, even now, like he can sell out arenas, but you know, he's not like, I don't know. He, he sort of can't necessarily do, he can't sell out stadiums by himself. That's for sure. And there's a time when he couldn't sell out arenas by himself. And there's probably a time when he couldn't sell amphitheaters by himself, but he always goes around, he brings somebody with him. I think he's got a really good kind of level of self-evaluation. And he's like, you know, he doesn't let his hubris get in the way of like, I can sell out whatever, whatever, unless he knows he can, you know, he's very accurate in that assessment. And if he can't make it, then he just brings somebody with him. He brings Eminem with him. You know, he goes out with Beyonce for the stadium tour. So you know, Justin Timberlake uh, with him. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So in a way, I think that tour was kind of the beginning of that and, you know, how we could see some synergies by mixing and matching right. with, with other artists. And that tour too, the Hard Knock Life tour, he showed signs of that awareness there. There's this iconic clip when Jay-Z was on The Shop a couple years ago, and he's talking about the show. This is shortly after DMX had passed away, and Jay-Z was going on tour in each of these nights after X and X's shows, you know, he's taking off his shirt, he's doing prayers at the end. So you have people that are laughing, you have people that are crying, then you have people that are screaming, and then they come out and they're like, oh, now you go, like pointing to Jay-Z. <laughs> and I mean, one, Jay-Z's storytelling of that is good. When we post this episode, we'll definitely share this clip in there. But two, it showed this awareness that people have spoke about of, and it's also what you're saying, even if he may not have always been the central act and another running thing that people have said over the years, what year was Jay-Z the top guy in hip hop? And I think mm -hmm. that is a very debatable thing, but it's the longevity. And that's the thing that speaks to it and how he's been able to stay through that over the years. And because he was always that core piece, like we said, this is probably one of the reasons that they didn't get a no limit or a cash money type deal. It really was just him. I think there was that one R&B album that Rockefeller had released in 1997, but didn't really go anywhere with that artist. So things didn't really pick up until late 90s, early 2000s. And you start to see more of the artists on Rock La Familia. And they're really able to spread their wings in that way. Yeah, I mean, another thing to remember at the time, you know, especially, I think it was 98, 99, that was when, you know, Def Jam, so I think Def Jam had already taken a pretty significant institutional investor, but they were selling the company or like maybe the remainder of the company or most of the remainder of the company. This is really, really big deal happening. And I forget which sort of European entertainment conglomerate. It was, was it Bertelsmann or it was like something that's since been reconstituted or whatever, but the deal was going to happen. And, you know, the deal was going to be for whatever multiple of revenue that Rockefeller had, or not Rockefeller, that Def Jam had produced in the prior year. And so for the, I think it was the calendar year of, of 1999. And so Lior and Russell just like leaned really hard on Jay and DMX and they were like, we need you to put out like two albums in 12 months because we're just going to get a multiple of that. And I don't remember the exact advances that, that were given, but you know, I'm sure it was considerable. And so, you know, they were able to put out like each of them two really killer albums in the span of like about 12 months each, which is like kind of unheard of these days. Right. I mean, Jay-Z goes like five years between albums now. And, you know, I think that was volume two and volume three for Jay-Z. And I think for DMX, it's dark and dark uh, as hell and hot. And then flesh, flesh of my flesh, flesh. Blood, blood. And then and those were like, and, like, and then there was X was the third. Oh, one. Then there was X. That's right. That's right. So those were like, like, two, like for each of them two a year and a half spare albums. I mean, yeah. back to back, you know, man, like to have that much sort of creative energy to do it so quickly. And to have it sell so well, I mean, it, it's quite a feat. And, you know, and they personally enriched Russell and Lear and Rick Rubin, like, I would say quite substantially because it just drove up that multiple. And yeah, I think a lot of people kind of forget how critical they were, you know, to that process. But it probably also got Jay-Z thinking, like, why am I working so hard to make somebody else, you know, I'm getting rich, but they're getting wealthy. And I think the gears are continuing to churn for him at that point. And he's like, hmm, how do I kind of get to be more in their position? Right. Because I think at this time, this is when you start seeing more of the 
Rockefeller expansions in a few ways. First, Dame is already thinking about ways to extend this brand. You see Rock Film. Streets is Watching comes out in the late 90s, and then they put out a whole documentary about the Hard Knock Life tour as well. And they start selling that as the DVD. Rock Aware comes out, and we're going to do a whole episode about Rock Aware eventually, but you know, Rock Aware itself. And then you also just start to see more and more product coming from Rockefeller that isn't necessarily from Jay himself. And I was looking back from a timeline, and this is one of the unfortunate things about Rockefeller. We're going to get to this, but right around the time they split, you could argue that they were just continuing to go up and up and up with the releases every year. Like this is the 12 month stretch that they had where I think they had the highest product starting in February 20, 2003. You had Freeway drops Philadelphia Freeway, Dipset drops Diplomatic Immunity, Jewels has his debut album, Jay-Z drops the Black album, Memphis Bleak drops his, and then top of 2004, Ye drops College Dropout, Young Guns drops their debut, and that's all in a 12-month span. That's some no-limit cash money level of dropping albums, and so there are so many hits and so many memorable songs that they had during that stretch. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that, if you know, we were talking earlier about the splits and so forth, but it's like, can you imagine if they had the kind of splits that cash money had had when you have all those albums coming out and... You know, yeah, I think it really would have changed things. Not only that, but, you know, to own the masters of all those artists, which you probably would have in those days, you know, to have like 100% or something close to it on all those artists with all those classics, you know, it, it would have been very hard to walk away from, you know, as they eventually ended up doing. This episode of the Trapital Podcast is brought to you by Norby, your digital marketing Swiss Army knife. Your music deserves to be heard and your fan base deserves to grow. With Norby, you have the tools to elevate your music marketing. Their easy-to-use AI-powered communications tools and page builder empower you to connect directly with your audience, capture essential information, and expand your loyal fan base. From planning unforgettable shows to gaining invaluable insights through analytics, Norby is the ultimate solution for shaping the future of music marketing. Kickstart your marketing efforts with user-friendly SMS email marketing, build captivating landing pages, and watch you effortlessly collect more leads and signups and turning those casual listeners into superfans. Several artists have had great success. Some have had 31% growth from their email list, 2x increase in streams, 2x increase in website click-through rate, and more. Get started for free with a two-week trial, no credit card required, and Trapital listeners get 50% off for three months after that. You can learn more by going to Norby slash Trapital. That's hi, H-I dot N-O-R dot B-Y slash Trapital. And I think what you mentioned earlier probably alludes to this, right? Because if there's enough of the pie to be split between the three founders and everyone else, and they're the one accruing the assets from what they have, then maybe Jay and Dame are more likely to figure out their differences in a way to make things cook because it's working for everyone. But when you're still paying Def Jam and on top of that, or you're still paying Island Def Jam and on top of that, Universal even more money, it's tough to justify that. And I think this is a good time to talk about the split, the infamous split between sure. Jay-Z and Damon Dash. You could start to see that the two of them were going in different areas where Jay-Z was wanting to be really focused in on what he was doing from a music perspective, wanting to expand there and wanting to just do different creative things. But Dame had his own approach. And we talked a little bit about that with the films and the sports and other things too. But he also wanted to do things his way. He was starting to get a little bit more spotlight. And then there's that infamous clip of them at Summer Jam 2001, where Dame Dash is in his full element and Jay-Z's just like expressionless. And that clip is often looked at as like, you knew from this moment that these two just weren't necessarily going to be at the same page because this is 2001. Jay-Z's about to drop the blueprint, his masterpiece. And granted, you know, he could have just been in the zone or whatever, but it's definitely an unfortunate thing because granted Jay-Z was able to reach further heights, but you never know what could have happened. You just look at how much Rock Aware ended up selling for, you look at the continued success, the momentum. And I think what it boils down to is to people that had different philosophies where it makes it tough, 
Jay-Z was a bit more focused on wanting to be rich. He was willing to do partnerships with others. If everyone could eat and have a piece of the pie, granted, he still wanted ownership. But as you've written about before, he has his perceptions on underdog brands and how he can move like a private equity executive and make the right investments and even the M&A deals he's continued to do today. His Live Nation deal is an element of this. But Dame was a bit more wanting to be king. He wanted to have his stamp on things. And I think you see that even now today with Dame Dash Studios, Dame Dash This. Like it's very important for him to be able to have his kids and his other folks around him be able to work with him and be the boss, not necessarily wanting anyone to tell you what you can and can't do. And that infamous Breakfast Club interview that they had, I think it was 2015, when he's yelling at DJ Envy and Charlemagne about, well, they got to report to whoever at Power 105, and that's their manager, that they're not a real boss, is an element of that whole dynamic. So it's frustrating that it happened, but it's also not surprising. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, Jay has kind of adjusted his views on ownership. And he said recently, I mean, he sold some of his big brands or sold half of it into a JV with like LVMH or, or, you know, or whatever. And he's very much in the mind of like, well, I, you know, 50% of like a billion is a lot more than a hundred percent of, you know, a, a couple hundred million. And I think that's that interview really... did with Kevin Hart, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. So and I don't remember the exact quote, but maybe you could, maybe you guys can pull it up, but I don't think Dame really ever got that. He was always like, well, I want a hundred percent, you know? And so, you know, he ended up with a hundred percent of like whatever, you know, seven or eight figure amount that he ended up with, but he could have had, you know, 50% or 30% or something of like billions of many billions probably. But, you know, just to kind of like, I think there was a precipitating moment that sort of like was the end of Rockefeller as it was a partnership between the three of them, but it really could have been anything. It was headed that way for a couple of years. And, you know, I think what it comes down to is that, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that Jay also recognized that Dame was very, very valuable. The skill set was especially valuable in the come up. And, you know, like when you are not well known, you need somebody to go in and yell at somebody at the radio station, you know, but then when you get there, you need somebody to like not yell at certain people, you know, and when you get to that next level and sort of Dame, you know, didn't adjust to that. And Dame was sort of Dame wherever he was. And it was great in one situation, not great in another situation. So, so I think the precipitating incident was basically when, you know, after this sale, which ironically Rockefeller helped boost, you know, the, the Death Jam sale, there was a reshuffling of executives, which is like so complicated. I'd have to go back to that chapter of my book to, to look at it. But the gist of it was the role of president at Def Jam opened up and it was offered to Jay-Z. And so, you know, Jay-Z, this is something that he had sort of, it's this like great prestige job, something that he'd always been wanting. And I don't think he wanted it like, this is my dream job that I've always wanted as much as it was like, if I can do this, be a CEO, this opens the door to so many other things. And it will really sort of entrench me as not being pigeonholed as an artist. And it was a no brainer. And of course there was no way to do this without stepping on Dame's toes. So, you know, there's this whole great drama. And I think, you know, the wheels started turning when Jay-Z was, you know, on, on a yacht in the South of France with like, Beyonce and Jimmy Iovine and Bono or something and kicking it. And, you know, there's some executives there, some conversations were had. I think at the same time back home, Dame like elevated Cameron to VP level at Rockefeller without consulting Jay. And it was this kind of like big scandal. And when Jay-Z came home, he was like, no. And he kind of demoted him. So there was some awkwardness there. But, you know, I think then that Jay kind of like accelerated his push toward this so your role, and when he got it, it's like, all right, you know, sorry, Dame, I'm your boss now. <laughs> I mean, because of course, Def Jam was above Rockefeller. There was really, there was no way for it not to be structured like that. So, you know, when that went down, of course, like Dame immediately, you know, quit or left or whatever. And there was a, a hot minute where he started the Damon Dash music group within Universal. But, you know, then he kind of like kept doing the same thing and kind of yelling at the wrong people and... And so that didn't really go anywhere. And, you know, the thing kind of fizzled out and Jay offered to, 
I think he wanted to give at the time he wanted to give Biggs and Dame like all of his pre-existing masters in exchange for exclusive ownership of reasonable doubt. They said no, but of course, you know, I don't know that the black album had gotten as big as it, you know, it hadn't like really fully blossomed into what it, what it ultimately was at the time. And there's like all those others. So anyway, I mean, there's a lot of like trades being offered and, you know, people sort of like, you know, it's like the guy in your fantasy football league, your fantasy baseball league, you kind of like overvalue his own players. I think I've made this analogy before, but dude, come on. Like, you know, your, your running back just got injured and offering you my extra running back for this wide receiver who you're not even using. Anyway, it didn't really work out. Everybody got all pissed on each other. You know, at the end, there's bad blood. So th- there's this great moment that Dame talks about how shortly after all this went down and they're like in the elevator at, I guess, the Universal Museum that Def Jam was housed in and Rockefeller had been housed in or something and they're like bumping to each other in the elevator and Dame is wearing a state property shirt and Jay-Z's like in the suit and Dame's like, man, you know, the things are really different now. Like, dude, you changed, you know? So, you know, I, I don't know if Jay changed so much as like Dame didn't change, you know, you could argue the problem was that Jay changed, but you could also argue the problem is that, that Dame didn't. And, you know, I mean, to some extent, like power to him, you know, be you, but Jay, you know, in the way that I think, you know, he's constantly changing. He's restless. He's always, everything is a chessboard. He's always evolving. You know, I think ultimately there was no way to stay locked into a partnership with someone who wasn't kind of willing to change with him. One thing you mentioned there made me think about how they think about things and where they are from a strategic perspective. Dame is very much your early stage startup guy. He's great for the pre-seed era. He's great for when you're even in the seed stage, maybe even Series A. But once you get to that Series B, C, you're starting to get some higher level executives. You're getting more talent. You're gone to bigger things. You can't operate the same way and no different how those organizations often need to rotate and think about leadership. That's essentially what, in many ways, was the opportunity there at Rockefeller. And there's nothing wrong with being very successful at that pre-seed seed stage. I don't think Rockefeller would have got to that point if it weren't for Dame hustling in many other ways, not. whether yeah. it was on tour, radio. And I think a lot of his success traits have been carried through and things we've seen celebrated and leaders in tech and people that do things that don't scale. That very much is Dame Dash. That next level, though, was where things did get a little bit tough because the label's clearly getting ready to go to that next level, and they just had their tensions there. The thing that was unique, though, about their tensions is that the artists themselves that were on Rockefeller started picking sides in terms of who they wanted to be with, who they were going to side with, Jay versus Dame, and as you mentioned, Dame was the one that had elevated Cameron, who was the leader of Dipset at the time to that VP level, that then brings everyone from Dipset under his umbrella. But Ye, who had just dropped the college dropout, and he was the one that was always trying to make it, he then signs with Jay. He also has a very memorable interview on The Breakfast Club where they asked him about this, and Ye was the one that was like, me and Dame, we're the same. We think the same. This is how we act and go about things. But I could learn more from Jay. He knows how to Mm. talk to people and he uses Jay's iconic lines. He's like, Jay knows how to move in a room full of vultures. That's just how he is. And sometimes I be talking and saying the wrong things, which is a very ironic thing. I don't know if Kanye himself (laughs) would admit that now because that very much is a self-serving prophecy. I do think that there's a lot of truth in that and just how things ended up shaking out for both of them. You saw the moves that everyone continued to make. And even though Ye has definitely been quite polarizing in the public spotlight, a lot of the moves that he continued to make, whether it was with Yeezy or with the partnerships he's had, I do think stem from how he looked up to his own big brother in Jay. Yeah. And he could have easily gone with Dame, right? I mean, you know, Jay wasn't so great to him early. Jay didn't believe in him as a rapper. He kind of wanted to keep him as a producer. And Dame was, I think, the one who really advocated for Kanye as a rapper. But, you know, I think Kanye in his, you know, like more self-aware moments can say things like, oh, I think I could learn more from Jay. He brings something to the table that I don't have. For Dame, I think the difference between Dame and Kanye is that they are very similar in a lot of ways, but Dame isn't an artist. Like, let's say a generationally talented artist. 
And so people will not put up with you if you're an executive and you bring along those headaches in the way that they would put a lot, put up with you if you're a generational artist and you bring those headaches. And I think that was sort of like also something that did Damon and, you know, in a way, I think Damon Puff had a lot in common, like they can just go in and kind of bulldoze their way into something. But Puff has that, that like other level where he can sort of like turn it up and down and, you know, to fit the situation and is like more of a chameleon than Dame is. And Dame is just kind of Dame all the time. So, you know, those are sort of the first size of play, but you know, like one person who gets lost in the shuffle here is Cameron because that was sort of the prime of his career that got like entangled in this sort of higher level beef. But, you know, you think about that album, come home with me and Hey Ma, and like, I mean, Cam was really, on fire going into this whole situation. And then he got kind of like, I don't say like exactly lost in the shuffle, but almost lost in the shuffle, you know? And you just kind of wonder how his career would have gone, you know, let's say if sort of he hadn't been like Dame's guy, you know, if, what if he had gone to Def Jam, you know, what would that have looked like? Could he have been on the level of somebody who signed, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, around that time, I think Rick Ross signed a Def Jam, was it? Ross, you know, Jeezy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I think certainly has, a, you know, comparable ability to either of those guys. And, you know, I think both of them went on to have, you know, sort of like more longevity. But like, you know, I think some of the Div Set classics and some of the solo stuff too, I mean, it's pretty unbeatable. So, you know, I just wonder, he's had a, a really good career either way, but like, you know, I don't know that he ever like broke through that next level consistently you know, to the point where he could just kind of stay there indefinitely. And I wonder if he might have, if things had kind of gone differently in the J Dame scenario. The man had men wearing pink. He started yeah. his own fashion. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's true. Unbelievable. Yeah. With that, I think it's a good chance to hit through some of these categories because I think you're jogging my memory with a few things here. What do you think is the best signing that happened under Rockefeller? Well, I guess you can't count Jay if he, you know, co-founded. Right. Um, Label, but you know, I'd say probably Kanye. It's hard to top that. And when you know, when you think about those first few albums, you know, I mean, he brought an element into hip hop into the mainstream that just wasn't there. And you know, I don't think you know, if you hadn't had Kanye in the pink polo and you know, talking about his feelings, like I don't know if you get Drake, right? I think that he kind of changed the discourse he brought hip hop to the mainstream. And then he also like brought a different sort of voice to hip hop. And it was fantastically lucrative, obviously for everybody involved. So yeah, I would go with Kanye for sure. Yeah. Agreed. And then just given the longevity there, even into the early 2010s, still putting out records under the Rockefeller records umbrella that still went back to them and longevity that lasted longer than most of the people that were assigned to that label. So I think it has to be him. Best business move made? I know we talked about a few of them, but what do you think is the best business move that to come from the Rockefeller era? Mm, I mean, it's funny now that we look at it. I mean, in a way, you know, the deal itself that set up Rockefeller was not, you know, it wasn't a bad deal, but it was not the best move. It wasn't the best kind of financial arrangement. You know, I mean, Rockaware is kind of an offshoot. Maybe that's cheating, but I'm going to go with Rockaware because I think in some ways they're like, well, we can't get a hundred percent of the money on this thing. So we're going to create an adjacent brand. It's like very clearly associated with it that we can really monetize fully. And, you know, I mean, they got paid. I mean, that, that company was doing hundreds of millions in revenue and, and they sold it for hundreds of millions. So, you know, I think they made more off of Rockaware than they ever made off of Rockefeller. So I'll go with Rockaware. We can talk more about it when we do the full Rockaware breakdown. I know. Yeah. I'd Rockaware as well. I won't go into the company itself because, yeah, we'll get into that in the next one. But I do think the good thing about that was it was a precursor to how artists now are thinking about their own revenue, their own business models, right? How they're using streaming, how they're using anything else that gives them a platform. Use that to grow your audience. Use that to grow the awareness while generating money for that. Establish the base. So some of those other business units were likely more influential thinking about 
them doing the deals with Def Jam and then them having the Hard Knock Life tour. But I do think Rock Aware was the best business thing to come through there, for sure. And just like a subset of that, I think the philosophy that was embodied by Rock Aware, you know, the idea of like they wanted to go, Rock Aware started because they wanted to go, there, there was this Italian knitwear brand, Iceberg, and they like went to the iceberg offices and said, Hey, can you give us some free t-shirts or something for rapping about your thing? And they're like, but no, I think they wanted an endorsement deal. They wanted some cash for an endorsement. And then the executives were like, we'll give you some free t-shirts. And Dame was like, this is stupid. Let's go start our own thing. So, but I think that was really the beginning of, you know, like, I'm not going to give free publicity to other brands. I'm just going to go start my own thing and rap about it. Like other rappers had done it, but it became so pervasive for Jay-Z's mindset. It wasn't just like, I'm going to do my own clothing line. It's, I'm going to do my own champagne. I'm going to do my own cognac. I'm going to try to do my own car. I'm going to try to do like a freaking video game. You know, he was involved in so many things that kind of sprung from that. So I think the implications were much broader than just the clothing aspect. Agreed. Next one here is the dark horse business move. So one that we actually haven't talked about, but I do think is one that Rockefeller definitely lead into was the Jay-Z and Nas beef. The controversy mm. that this was able to stem and start, I briefly mentioned Summer Jam 2001, but everything from then and just the drama from there, the two of them back and forth. Jay drop in TakeOver, that Nas drop in Ether. That whole back and forth was able to then create so much interest. They had all those beef DVDs that were blowing up in the 2000s, I think largely came up because of how they were able to reignite beef from essentially the biggest beef that hip hop had seen since Biggie and Tupac several years yeah. earlier. It was huge. And the level of bars that I think we're able to get, the songs that you're able to get back and forth, just the impressiveness of Nas essentially taking on this whole entire unit by himself. People can debate whether or not who won and lost, whether you're looking specifically from a battle perspective versus who won in the long term, but we eventually see them come together on American Gangster and they continue this a familiar relationship ever since. But I do think that this was the height of the time to really sell controversy. Obviously, we saw 50 Cent and others continue to do that to, you know, their own, putting their own flavor on as well. But I do think that Jay-Z and Nas's beef still was one of the little crown jewels yeah. that they had with this. Absolutely. And you could tell that it was like there was real enmity there, but also, you know, the fact that it it never turned violent, I think was just, I think it was really good for hip hop. And I don't think it was ever going to turn violent, but I think, again, there was this, this kind of like national paranoia around hip hop and there is, you know, in waves, I think it was just a good reminder that you can have like a spirited dispute and it, it's okay. And it's entertainment, you know, and it's nothing that anybody needs to be afraid of. So, you know, of course, like credit to Jay and Nas for resolving it amicably, but man, you know, like, just being in New York at that time and like the barbs going back and forth. And I, mean, I think that's the only time that like a beef has gotten so nasty that a rapper's mother has like made him basically apologize <laughs> for saying something mean, <laughs> which I think that was Jay-Z's response to Ether. I think Ether was sort of like the pinnacle of it. And Jay-Z's response to it was like, not quite as good. Like, how do you top Ether? But I think Jay-Z's was just like, viscerally like you know i won't get too deep into it because if jay-z had to like call in to apologize for it you know, I don't talk about it on a podcast but, but yeah i mean just to have that end you know like very amicably i think was just so good for everybody involved and then you know i think it's really fun to watch jay and nas as their relationship has evolved and you know nas was sort of always like the one who was sort of behind when it came to the business of things. And then, you know, like he really was music first all the time. And, you know, I think some people thought that he would never really kind of blossom as a businessman, but then, you know, he became sort of the leader within hip hop entering the venture capital world and, you know, created this great Queensbridge venture partners and, you know, invested early in just about every startup you can name. And, has had all kinds of fantastic exits 
And, you know, I think it's so funny that Jay-Z then started MVP, you know, Marcy. <laughs> so it's like definitely like a nod to Nas, you know, each of them naming their venture fund after the project where they grew up. So I think that's super cool. And, you know, they still like drop these little subliminal, I don't know, like references where you could tell they're kind of like tweaking each other, just like, you know, like sibling rivalry kind of thing, which is, I think, really fun to watch. And, you know, I, I think that there's some friendly competition around deals and so forth these days, but it's just, it's so fascinating to like watch the evolution from this real knockdown drag out, very personal beef that occurred, you know, to now like sort of like comparing deal flow. And I think it speaks very positively toward like the evolution of the business of hip hop. Definitely. You think about things that they rapped about in their most recent songs that have went popular, right? Like Nas's song where he calls himself cryptocurrency Scarface or <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jay-Z. What was that line in God Did with Khaled where he's like, oh, we have cap tables, not that cap table or something like that. I mean, he's yeah, yeah. clearly leading into that stuff. What do you think is the missed opportunity if, of any from Rockefeller? Besides the split, because I know we've talked about that, but there are yeah. any other missed opportunities, especially from that 96 to 03, 04 range? I think it's Armadale. Armadale Vibe. And, you know, that kind of came to be, I think, of anybody, that was more Biggs's pet project than Jay or Dame. Although, you know, Jay was kind of trying to make it happen. He, would, he had it, if you recall, the MTV Unplugged album which actually might be my favorite Jay-Z album of all time. It's kind of cheating because it's not a studio album, but it's so good. He's backed up by the roots anyway. He's like, at some point, he's like, I need to stop for some Armadale. I need an army break. You know, he was really trying to shout it out everywhere he could. But already when they started doing that, you know, they were on the outs, I think. And I think Jay-Z wasn't fully invested in it because why would he get fully invested in, a, in another thing that he was partners with Biggs and Dame on? I don't think anything against Biggs, obviously, and I think they're totally cool now and they've been doing some stuff together more recently. But like, why would he go do that when he could just wait and then do something on his own? But, you know, I mean, Armadale could have been Ciroc, right? If they'd done it right. There's no reason that it couldn't have been. I mean, it's the same formula. It's like European, unknown, whatever. And then, you know, put it in videos, put it in songs and you make it, you know, whatever it's going to be. And, you know, we've seen what Jay has done with Ducey and Armand de Brignac, so we know he can do it. It's not only Puff who can do it. There's only a few people who can do it to level they can do it, but like Jay and Puff can do it and done it. And Jay could have done it with Armadale. He just, you know, uh, the timing just didn't quite work out. I think Armadale had one memorable shout out from a Jay-Z song. It was Excuse Me Miss, right? Where he's talking about Armadale popping off. But that's also the same song. I think he gave Cristal a pretty big shout out there where he's like, it's not Cristal, it's Cristal, right? But then yeah, a couple yeah, of years yeah, later, yeah. he's like, no, like, obviously, we're done with Cristal because of, you know, comments, racist comments that the founder or the CEO had said at the time. My missed opportunity is one that highlights something that I think Jay-Z did well, but it probably could have done more of, and that's movie soundtracks. If you ask certain Jay-Z mm. fans, I do think that they have American Gangster as one of their top Jay-Z albums, as they should. It's a great album. I honestly think the album's probably even better than that movie is in particular points. But <laughs> Jay-Z, so that movie, that soundtrack comes out 2007. He missed, I think, an entire wave of times when movie soundtracks, in my opinion, were even were just bigger deals than they are by even 2007 and even later on. And now I think it's very hit or miss that you could even get a soundtrack to that level, but especially during the rock era. And I know that he had songs that were popular on them, but really being the MC behind an entire soundtrack in that type of way, I think could have been, there probably could have been more opportunities to do something like that earlier on. Oh, I like that. That's a really deep cut. So a few more things here on Rockefeller. Well, we've seen just continued spats back and forth, not necessarily jabs, but just comments back and forth between Jay and Dame. It's been nearly 20 years since this split. We've definitely seen more from Dame than Jay. And it's one of those things where it does become a bit sad to see and frustrating to see at times and yeah. not that you expect them to be best of friends. We have seen Jay-Z say things that are quite complimentary when he got inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame he did shout out both him and biggs and say hey this wouldn't have happened without either of you regardless of what had happened you know in our past 
got to give you guys both shouts for that. But then we've also seen Dame say things during the years, and I think he's alternated on whether or not he's wanted to speak on them and stuff. But it's one of these things that is a bit frustrating to see because I think about it when I think about NBA players and how they've had issues over the years. Kobe and Shaq, of course, infamously, they continued to talk about each other for years. And then eventually they came and they had that sit down chat on TBS, right, where they're talking back and forth. If Jay and Dame ever did something like that, they don't even have to go do it on some platform. They could do it on their own thing. It would be box office. It would be great to be able to see that and just see how then hear them talk things out. Because even another NBA thing, Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen, of course, had had their infamous dispute because Ray Allen went to go join the Miami Heat. Kevin Garnett, very intense, hated that. That was their rival. But then after Ray Allen had walked past him at the 75th anniversary thing last year, that's when KG was like, okay, what if Ray Allen passes the same way, passes away the same way that Kobe Bryant did? I would yeah. be very upset with myself if that ever happened. So it's like, hey, you guys are both in your 50s now. You never know what can happen. We're seeing a lot of artists and a lot of entertainers that we love that are around the same age as Jay and Dame have unfortunate health scares. If there's a way that, not even that it needs to be public just for our consumption, but if there's a way to see them ever rekindle things at that perspective, that would be nice to see at least in a public way yeah i mean i think it'd be great i just don't know i just don't know that it would happen you know i mean i think that jay has so fully moved on i just don't know if he would do it and i think just sort of like the nature of dame is to sort of like want the spotlight and i think jay just kind of like wouldn't want to deal with that you know i think dame would want to come into it with sort of like equal billing and it kind of goes back to a strategy that Jay has had throughout his career, which is like, you know, I think he learned this when he had that line, I'm about a dollar, what the fuck is 50 cent? And this is like when nobody knew 50 cent was, and it kind of catapulted him into the conversation. Even though within hip hop, Damon Dash is obviously, you know, really well known and let's say highly respected by some, maybe infamous to others, but you know, he's definitely a known quantity. I think in the national conversation, Damon Dash is not known. And I think that now that Jay-Z is in the sort of international phase of his, you know, of his career, like that same philosophy might apply. Like, I don't want to sort of like give free publicity to somebody, you know, for no reason. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe if you were in some kind of legacy burnishing mode and like, you know, mending fences or something like that, but it, it might have to come down to some kind of like somebody has a health issue situation, you know, for it to really like resolve it in that way. And I just don't know, like, again, in terms of it being, you know, like box office, I mean, it would be great versus, <laughs> you know, yeah. but I don't know that people would tune in for like a Jay Dane special or something like that. And I don't know that Jay, that's what Jay would want for his brand. I think, you know, Jay-Z wants to be like, Jay and Bill Gates do a one-on-one -on -one sit down. Like, I don't think he wants to like go back to that period of his life. I think that's fair because I think that's a good clarification because it would almost be like, it maybe it would be less like the Kobe and Shaq thing. It would almost be more like Jordan and Pippen where like Pippen is the one that's yeah. like wild shit about Michael Jordan and Michael yes. Jordan's like, I'm in rooms right now considering selling my stake in the Charlotte Hornets for yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars right now, maybe even billions at yeah. this point. So I think to your point, it likely is something that would mean a lot to people within hip hop, but not necessarily at this level where, you know, it's not like both of these people were clearly at doing the same thing. They were complementary, but one was the artist and the artist is yeah. always going to have a bit of that pull there. So yeah. And I guess before we close things out, as we do with these case study breakdown episodes, we always break down who won the most from this record label in this era. Jay-Z is the obvious answer, but if we were to take Jay-Z out of the equation, who do we think is the person that won most from Rockefeller Records? Well, I mean, you know, I would almost argue that Dame was the big winner over Jay because Jay has gone on to do all these other things. And granted, like if he hadn't gotten his start and 
game hadn't been sort of like the early stage VC for him, you know, would he have finally made it? I kind of think he eventually would have made it anyway. And I think that, you know, the Rockefeller years were the peak of Dame's career. And, you know, he will always be known in some circles and, you know, and revered in some circles for his role there, you know, in a way that every, you know, I'd say nothing he's done since has sort of done for him, if that makes any sense. I get that. I follow that logic. My answer is Kanye. And I think Mm. we talked about this a little bit, but I just, because I think the core piece of the question is where would this person have been without Rockefeller records, right? I feel like Jay, or I feel like Dame probably would have found someone, probably even another artist in Harlem to attach his way to. I don't think there was anything stopping him in the late 90s era from doing what he eventually, he could have teamed up with Irv Gotti and done it with Murder Inc. I think he could have like done it with a few of these other groups potentially, but would Ye have been in the same situation if it weren't for Rockefeller? I think he clearly is talented, but I think he needed a little bit more of the stars aligning in the right way for him to have had the career. Interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, specifically what he was selling, you know, nobody was buying at the time, right? Like, and it took someone with street cred, someone like Dame, someone like Jay to take a chance on him and elevate him and sort of into the national conversation that then, you know, allowed there to be sort of more demand for it and for people to really get invested in it. So, yeah, I mean, I think Kanye would have figured something out, but, you know, I really do wonder, I mean, he might've just gone a totally different route, you know, like he might've just been like unknown in hip hop circles, but gone and done something totally different in, you know, in fashion circles and maybe become known in hip hop circles only in the way that somebody like Virgil Abloh became known. Right. Or uh, almost like a Jane you know. Dilla or someone like that. Like mm-hmm. you have to be in it. And then you're like, do you hear the brilliance yeah. of the music that this person produced? Yeah. 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 That's a really good point. So it could have been a very different path for him too. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's a good one. Yeah. Well, I know we could talk for another hour about Rockefeller itself. All right. Very good. Thanks again, Dan. You too, Zach. Thanks, man. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapolo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.